Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. An ordained minister has decided to give up God for a year. How the heck do you just up and become atheist after being a pastor? What I'm most worried about right now is figuring out how I can live openly and honestly. I am finally free to be me. I have no idea how to find friends or become a part of a community that's not religious. What does life look like after church, after religion, after God? That's, you know, that's that's it in a nutshell. This is the Life After God podcast, a conversation on the space between belief and unbelief and beyond with your host, Ryan Bell. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Life After God podcast. My name is Ryan Bell, and I'm your host. This is episode 92. My guest today is Jamie Lombardi. Jamie teaches philosophy at Bergen Community College in New Jersey and is the mom of two elementary-age boys. She's also a huge nerd, which I say with the utmost respect, especially when it comes to the novelist and public intellectual Albert Camus, which, along with the general dystopian nature of our everyday lives, is the main subject of our conversation today. During our conversation, you'll also pick up on a few of her other influences, including Simone de Beauvoir. As usual, I managed to work in a reference to Martin Hagelin and his remarkable book, This Life. Our conversation sort of meanders around from current events to themes in Camus' writing and the relationship of all of that to humanism and how we are surviving this pandemic. We recorded this on September the 11th, the 19th anniversary of the tragic events of 2001, So we reflect a little on that anniversary and what it's like to still be in the midst of a global pandemic in which, at that time, 195,000 U.S. Americans have died from the virus. As of the release of this episode, over 200,000 people have now died from the virus. On the West Coast, we are also in the middle of the worst fire season in recorded history, and we're about 50 days away from one of the most consequential elections in my lifetime. Oh, and we're still fighting for justice for black Americans murdered at the hands of police in cities around the United States, including my own city of Pasadena, where Anthony McLean was shot and killed by a police officer, and in the county of Los Angeles, where Dijon Kizzy was shot and killed by a L.A. County Sheriff's deputy. So yeah, it's been a little wild lately, but somehow talking about Camus, the way he was able to see so clearly what's at stake in our lives and what it means to live a good life, was calming, and Jamie and I both commented that we felt better by the end of the hour. As always, thank you from the bottom of my heart for your support. Making this podcast is one of the most fun and rewarding things I do with my time, and the support from those of you who contribute financially is so, so helpful and appreciated. If you're new to listening to this podcast, it's important that you know that this podcast is made possible by the generous support of over 80 listeners who contribute anywhere from a dollar to $50 a month to make it possible. So I want to say a hearty thank you to each one of you. I want to especially thank my dear friend, Nathan Watkins, who is an investor in this podcast. Thank you all so much for helping me keep this show going, especially now during these challenging times. 
Some folks have understandably needed to take a step back. So if you're doing okay and you've been thinking about becoming a member for a while, the price of a cup of coffee or a movie ticket a month makes an enormous difference. Please visit patreon.com slash lifeaftergod where you can sign up to be a monthly recurring contributor today. It would also be awesome if you would subscribe to the podcast on whatever app you use and leave me a review on Apple Podcasts. Give me a five-star review and a comment there. It really helps us spread the word about the show to new listeners. Enough about all of that. Let's get to this conversation with Jamie Lombardi. Jamie Lombardi, welcome to the Life After God podcast. Thank you so much, Ryan. How are you? I'm good. It's so good to talk to you again. This is uh, this is super exciting. We've been chatting about doing this for a long time, and here we are in the middle of a pandemic with the West Coast on fire on 9-11. Seems like the perfect yeah. day. Quite a backdrop. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So um, it's tempting to dive right in, but let, let me actually, for those that, of the, uh, my listeners who don't know you... Um, just give us a little bio. Who are you? Um, so I teach philosophy at a community college in New Jersey, um, and I have more Twitter followers than should be reasonable, um, given my actual qualifications, where uh, I tweet a lot about Camus and how terrifying it is to live in the United States in the midst of a pandemic um, while the government collapses and a climate catastrophe waits for us <laughs> on the other side that nobody seems willing to meaningfully address. It's super fun. Yeah, definitely. And we crossed paths. I mean, I've been following you on Twitter for a while, but we crossed paths back in, I guess, April toward the beginning of the pandemic. And um, my friend Greg Epstein tweeted something about Camus' The Plague and... I had been thinking about the plague. I had probably seen one of the rash of articles that came out in March and April, kind of going, hey, guys, this is newly relevant. Um, and so we got together this little conversation, which ended up including you, which was really fun um, for a Secular Student Alliance event, which is available as a video. And I'll post the link to that in the show notes for those of you that may not have seen that. That was an amazing conversation just focused on the plague. And... Um, and yet here we are, still in the middle of a plague. Yeah, so it, in the in Camus' novel, The Plague, I believe it lasts for 10 months. So by that logic, we've got at least four months. Four more to, to go. go. Before this is over. Yeah, so. and the way that he writes the novel, you really do get the feeling that this is dragging on. Like you're sort of waiting for something to happen in the novel. Like it's just like, okay, when's the next major event and he he really accurately portrays like how this is just dragging on yeah there's one scene early in the novel where the townsfolk are finally coming to terms with this really is a plague and the the city gates are really going to be closed down and a woman just opens a window in her apartment and screams and then closes the window (laughs) again and that that really resonated with me, because that is how I feel very often on most days, where I just need one good visceral primal scream, mm. and then I can get back to the task of living in the midst of this horror show. Yeah, again. and you're you're a single parent in the middle of this, teaching full time at university, teaching your kids yeah. remotely now. Yes, yeah. So all of those things, Uh, the boy's (laughs) father passed away seven years ago. So it is all on my shoulders. Mm. And 
we are in one of the original hotspots of the pandemic. We're about 13 miles from Manhattan. And so New Jersey was hit really hard. And especially my little one responded just very poorly. I don't even want to say poorly. He's eight. Any response to this is fair. But he was grief stricken at how everything was closed down. He was isolated from his friends, from his extracurricular activities. And I was just so nervous that there was a likelihood of the, the virus continuing to, to spread through the school or that the schools would have to close again and you'd have to go through that loss all over again, hmm. that I've decided to, to keep them home where it's safe or and we've gotten to something like a routine, learning to live with each other at home all of the time. But I figured mm. it was best to, to keep plugging along on what we were able to do than try to do some crazy upheaval in the hopes that the world was something other than it is. Mm. Yeah. And so and today we're talking on September the 11th, the the 19th anniversary of um, that terrible event. And were you you were roughly in similar location uh, to where you live now, 19 years ago? Yeah, so the anniversary of 9-11 is now as old as I was when 9-11 happened. Hmm. So my whole adult life has been shaped by 9-11, and I grew up about 12 miles from Manhattan, hmm. and I'm still pretty close to where I had grown up. At the time, I was actually living with the family of a friend because I had previously been emancipated as a minor. My life has been very colorful. And we were so close to the city that there was actual smoke and like ash debris mm. falling into the backyard mm. that day. Uh, it was outright. Yeah, it was unbelievable. Experience. I was uh, I was a pastor still at the time living in uh, Bucks County, Pennsylvania, um, had a church there and w- had a very dear friend, still a very dear friend of mine, who at the time was also clergy in on the Upper East Side. And I had my then wife my almost one-year-old baby and and me in the car, and we were on the New Jersey Turnpike on the way to visit him on the Upper East Side of Manhattan, no joke. And we were planning to go through the Lincoln Tunnel, and we were about halfway there, which is probably, we were probably 45 to 50 minutes away, I guess, and uh, maybe a little more. Maybe we were not quite that far along, and he calls me and tells me what's going on. We turned around and went home, of course, but we narrowly missed getting stuck in all of that you know, traffic f- from all the closures and everything. So it was a really like pivotal event in my life as well. Even though I was older, my, my daughter was not even one. So, you know, she was, you know, she's never known a pre nine 11 world. And, um, and you were, you were sort of reflecting on some things today. I, I saw first on Twitter and then on Facebook about um, just the, the setting, the backdrop of everything that we're going through right now with the pandemic and the economic collapse and the sort of gradual and maybe accelerating slide into fascism, it seems like we're enduring um, at, on the 19th anniversary. Uh, how, do you, how, do, how are you sort of processing this? I mean, it's, it seems like, I mean, it was obviously a horrible event where lots of people died and it was a direct attack on, you know, our country and some of its symbols. Um, but now a lot of other people have died from something more insidious, it seems like. Yeah, so this is really hard to distill into something coherent and, and, and quippy because the, the truth is that I'm feeling a lot of different things. Mm. Primarily, I'm, I'm struck 
at the particular way that Americans display patriotism Mm. and how so much of that seems to me to be symbol and signifier, but not much significance. And so it really strikes me um, that there's this outpouring of, of flags and pictures of blue lights and this talk about, you know, the importance of American freedom and American lives and justice that I'm having a very difficult time reconciling with the loss of 192,000 lives. And it strikes me as not possible for me, at least, to be proud of a country that is unable to do anything in response, or not unable to do anything, because this country would be able to do something if it wanted to. It's unwilling. right? And that's what really sits with me now to be clear i'm not a mathematician i'm not an economist um i teach philosophy um but it seems really wild to me that 9-11 legitimated spending 6.4 trillion with a t Mm. dollars and two decades at war to avenge this injustice and it it was a gross injustice i'm not saying that we shouldn't have you know, mourned these lives or that we shouldn't continue to mourn the lives that we lost on 9-11, but that there's this sort of collective shoulder shrugging Mm. in the face of 200,000 dead Americans, which we know by the time that this is done is going to be closer to half a million dead Americans. Um, And it's just absolutely outrageous to me that we are not able to leverage all of the resources, both financial and Mm. just in terms of human ingenuity that this country has to put in place the things that we need to rise to this challenge. Like this country is capable of rising to this challenge. If ever there was a moment to rise to the challenge of actually putting together the infrastructure necessary to make sure that every single American had access to the health care they needed, this is it. Yep, yep. And we're not doing it because it's too expensive. And I, 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 as the, the West Coast is on fire, my thoughts keep going back to, to people saying things like, well, the Green New Deal, for example, is too expensive. But as Bernie right. Sanders said, as opposed to what? How right. many people have to die before we go, oh, you know, Maybe profit isn't the the primary operating principle of a just government. Maybe we need to come up with some other organizing solution. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I I work uh, one of my, if not my primary social activism is around tenants and and tenant justice. I'm um, one of the organizers in our local tenants union and we're working on a rent control campaign here. And so I, I sort of see a lot of this through the lens of of um, you know working class people who are struggling to pay their rent and who no, you know through no fault of their own lost their jobs because governments did you know one of the one of the right things that the government did do is to sort of ask people to stay home and and to close down businesses but that resulted in people losing their jobs and the government didn't do the other piece which was to keep those families solvent during that crisis which you know countries like New Zealand did do. Um, and, and they've sort of weathered the storm and are kind of getting back on their feet, it sounds like. Um, and so now you've got people who were barely covering their rent to begin with. Now they're, I don't know, five, six months behind many people, thousands of people. And, you know, evictions have been pushed off to the end of the year, according to the CDC and in California until February. And then in some other states, maybe it's a little bit different or 
Maybe you have no protections in some states. So we're looking at people being just thrown out on the street in a few months when they can't come up with six months of back rent. I can tell you I can't come up with six months of back rent. Um, right. Most people who work for a living can't. And the expectation that anybody should is outrageous. But it gets, I think what it gets to is this idea, the reason that we aren't meaningfully doing things like a rent freeze or a mortgage freeze is because to do so would be to concede that our governing economic philosophy is completely full of shit. Mm. And the entire way that we live our lives as American citizens needs to be restructured because all of the human suffering that goes into this system is unnecessary. And once people get a sense, right, once you introduce things like UBI or you introduce things like going to the doctor when necessary without having to go bankrupt. <laughs> whoa, for whoa, it, whoa. Going to the doctor. I know. I, I know. I've been, I know. It's you're outrageous. dreaming. It's you're outrageous. dreaming. I'll let you. It's dream. outrageous. <laughs> I understand that what I'm saying is outrageous and it's only been able to be accomplished <laughs> by every other developed nation right. on the planet. So I understand um, but yeah, we we can't do that because if our government actually responded to this crisis appropriately in a way that prioritized saving human lives, they'd never get Americans to go back to the way that they told us it was good to be living. Yep. This idea, you know, this this Puritan work ethic, right, that gets sort of lionized and mythologized is complete propagandic propagandistic bullshit mm-hmm. excuse me i don't know if i'm allowed to curse on this podcast oh, i can go for I it. Can, it i can i could do a try to do a better job of i just take a little it. box on 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 um spreaker you know that says that it's not safe for tender ears and then they let me do it perfect it's i'm you know it's this this day is just emotionally yeah um intense and so i'm not doing a good job of of keeping myself <laughs> and, you, um, and nor you should know, you measured. Uh, but I don't know how to be measured, to be honest, in the face of what's taking place. Yeah. Because 200,000 people are dead and they shouldn't have to be. Like, right. this is outrageous. Like, how many and people how- would have died, you know, like I've been thinking, like, how many people would have died of the virus no matter what we did? You know, I mean, certainly people were going to die from the virus. There's no question about it. But certainly not 200,000 going on, quarter of a million going on, however many it'll be by the time we're done here. And we just learned, you know... To, you know, to no great surprise that Trump knew more than he let on and he said it was contagious and then he lied to the American people about it. And it seems like, you know, the primary motivation based on his other obsession um, is to save, you know, the economy or the stock market as which he equates with the economy. So if you have a pandemic, obviously people are going to panic and people are going to, you know, stop spending or people are going to sell their stocks or whatever to become more liquid and, and the stock market will tank. So ostensibly right he keeps this a secret or tries to downplay it um not in the interest of uh human lives but in the interest of the stock market and keeping things going for his rich buddies yeah so i i think that gets to our whole idea of what it means to live a good life and particularly the american interpretation of what it means to mm. be a good life and i think this was made really clear as conversations began to move towards schools reopening and people began to insist that teachers should be treated as essential workers and it became very obvious in in that transition that essential worker was being used as a euphemism for acceptable human sacrifice mm. yeah 
Yeah, and I mean it's all over the place. I mean it's the meat plants, you know, the pork processing plants that opened and and um, frontline workers without PPE. And and no, like as one friend of mine said, you know, there could have been like a a wartime effort to take people who are now unemployed and quickly put them to work making masks and making you know uh, gowns for for frontline medical workers. And and yet nothing happened. Not you know nothing. And and states were fighting over um, you know the bid, bidding war on on protective equipment. And it's just and then and Trump using language like they. To refer to people that live in states and us, it's, he's doing this kind of us and them thing with Americans, other other Americans. It's it's an us. It's not an us and them, right? But he casts it as this us and them kind of kind of uh, rhetoric. Well, yeah, I think a very good way of understanding the the Trump administration is is as a, a mirror being held up to our society and what we really value. And so much of our politics and, and, and our policies comes down to who gets to count as mattering, whose needs get to count as legitimate, and who is just an undeserving member of society who's suffering that we can write off. And for a really long time, the people who got to be written off as undeserving have been predominantly black and brown bodies and poor people. Mm -hmm. And so it became obvious in the beginning of this pandemic that the communities that were most impacted by the virus were people on the front lines of the economy who, oh, well, look, as it turns out, are disproportionately black, brown and poor. And so the government made a decision that they didn't need to care about them because they didn't matter. And that's reflected all the way through our politics and really made the most clear, I think, in the government response to this pandemic. So that's a, a great place, I think, to transition to, to talking more about Camus, because he's, you know, of, of all the intellectuals of the 20th century, uniquely interested in this question of human suffering what it means, if anything, how we respond to it. Um, and he, you know, famously sets this against uh, a fictional plague in Algeria, um, which we've talked about before. How do you see Camus sort of helping us understand this sort of, I guess, moment that isn't special in some ways? I mean, the specialness of it seems to be like the overlapping catastrophes like we've seen pandemics, we've seen wars, we've seen fires, but right now we have a confluence of these things that really magnifies all of them together. Um, how's how's Camus like for you at least like helping us understand this moment and what it requires of us? Um, so for me, I think I can relate Camus to anything, um, but. <laughs> In, in, but that's also a part because of what I think the answer to this question is. I think there's a real humanism in Camus mm. um, that is not, you know, unique to Camus. But I think his immediate connection to a life marked by poverty and, and how poverty could foreclose a human life made it much made it feel to him as much more of a moral imperative to impact the world and how it was organized to actually address this sort of suffering. And it wasn't merely a theoretical or an intellectual exercise for Camus. He really thought that the lessons of philosophy were to guide how we acted in the world 
on a day-to-day basis. And he believed that if we took those insights and acted in the way that we ought to, we could actually reduce human suffering. Hmm. And that's what we should be doing with our time. And it was indefensible not to. We talked a little bit a few days ago, um, just over, you know, text about about the fall. Um, and, you know, in scheduling this conversation with you, I I delayed long enough that I could reread the fall, which a lot of people think, uh, get your take on this, is, you know, Camus maybe most um, striking achievement, even though my experience of it is that it, it doesn't read like a page turning story the way that. Uh, the plague does because it's all in the voice of one person speaking in the second person. And in that sense, it's very odd. Um, So it's not like when you first get into it, you're like, what's going on? I had to go back even after I'd read it once when I was younger, even this time reading it, I had to like go read 10 pages and then start again and be like, now, wait a second, what's happening here? (laughs) Um, So why do people love the fall so much? Why do you love the fall so much? So I can't speak to why other people love the fall, but I'm happy uh, to talk about why I love the fall because this is my favorite Mm. of all of his novels. And I think he's doing something really interesting here. I think what he's trying to get at is, as you mentioned, this, this notion of innocence and guilt itself. But particularly, I think he's trying to get into the mindset of someone who carries out this injustice, how it is that people go about their lives in difference to human suffering Mm. and being part of the structure that perpetuates it. And I think we see with with Clements here, he has this idea of himself, right, as this morally upstanding citizen. His whole conception of his identity is someone who is on the side of the good. And I think that this is true for most people. Most people don't go about their lives doing bad things because they've identified doing bad as a thing they ought to do. They're not really clear about what it means to be good. And so this novel to me is is to is Camus' attempt at understanding how that cognitive dissonance operates on an individual level and becomes systematized hmm. because it's important, right, that Clemence's professional responsibility is to do the judging of, of what is good and bad. And so he's keeping in place these these notions of morality, these notions of good or bad. And so he hangs his hat on this idea that he helps out the poor widow who's been abandoned. But it never occurs to him to question, why is it that our society abandons poor widows? And, and, and requires the, the alms to be given by good exactly. so-called good people. Yeah. Yeah. And so one thing that this really reminded me of, I believe it was the New Yorker. They did an, a profile on the gala scene in New York City in the aftermath of the pandemic. And it turns out, a significant portion of the money that charities raise is is done during their gala season, which mm. is basically when they host parties for rich people with an abundance of discretionary income. And in the midst of a pandemic where the stock market is, is collapsing, there's record unemployment, there's record food insecurity, and we have no idea how we're going to come through this, these charities are concerned that they're not going to be able to raise as much money as they used to, despite the fact that, by all accounts, the rich are doing better than they've ever done in the midst of this. 
And it really highlighted the arbitrariness of human suffering, that all of these rich people who can get together to get dressed up and have parties for the social currency of being philanthropists, right? It's all well and good when they can do it in a fancy dress. But if they can't do it in a fancy dress, they're just going to turn their backs on all of the people who need this assistance because providing that assistance doesn't make them feel good. And instead, what we really need to be doing is addressing the fact that our system functions on philanthropy. Philanthropy itself is an indication that our government has already failed to meet the basic needs of our citizens. And there shouldn't be this cottage industry that, you know, sort of mitigates the suffering of the poor for the social currency of getting to say they're a good person. Mm. Yeah, it's like that that innocence is for sale to those who can afford it. This would be a good time to plug the book Winners Take All by Anand Girid Haradas, who uh, was published about two years ago. And, you know, he really takes apart this whole um, philanthropic class and how the, you know, the capital that is stolen from workers is then given back in small percentages. Um, and, and then, of course, we're expected to be grateful you know, for for these little um, bits, and and it is paternalistic in the sense, as you mentioned before, that he he talks about the Rockefellers and and um, the Carnegies that they genuinely had a philosophy that it was best for the world for them to get wildly wealthy and then create libraries and museums and and dole out their resources to the poor because the poor really didn't know well enough what they needed or what they wanted. They, the rich, the, the intelligentsia really understood better what was needed for the poor masses than the poor masses understood for themselves. And so they would be the ones who would, um, you know, create the resources, the, you know, the, the arts and, and all the other things that a good society would need because the rest of us were too stupid to know what was good for ourselves. Yeah. And so one of the reasons that I adore Camus' work so much is that he's really focused on trying to identify these sort of ideologies that inform how we relate to each other so that he can identify the contradictions and sort of transcend beyond them. He's got a story called The Voiceless in the, in the, the compilation Exile in the Kingdom, where he talks mm. about the perspective of a, of a worker strike. And ultimately, the workers are, are unsuccessful and the strike fails. And there's this really interesting interaction with their boss where the boss wants to come into the workshop and he wants to be treated like one of the guys. And obviously, you know, none of the workers want to treat him like one of the guys. Um, their, their strike has failed. Their pay has not been raised. Um, they're barely able to meet their needs. And it becomes obvious two things. One, that, you know, winning isn't enough. He needs to get the people who have lost, right, mm. to participate in this fiction that dominating them is somehow good. Good for right? them. Yeah. Doing a good and noble thing. And then he phrases it as though his willingness to still give them this work at poverty wages is a charity he's providing to them. Right. And what that does is obscure the fact that his very way of life is made possible 
by these people's labor and that he could not exist and live the life that he wants to were it not for the people he's able to exploit because in the absence of wages, our society is structured such that they can't feed their children. They can't keep a roof over their heads. And it's a very subtle way of shifting who's actually morally responsible for the suffering that's so rife in our world. Hmm. So does... Camus openly identify with a political ideology through all of this? So the closest political ideology that can be attributed to Camus is as an anarchist. Um, He never formally joined any political party. He very famously said that if the, the right argument was on the right, he would find himself on the right. And he took it as a source of pride that um, he was attacked from both the left and the right. Um, He'd take well to Twitter today. I wonder how he would manifest on Twitter. He would be great on Twitter, (laughs) uh, but he would be pissing off everybody because he wouldn't pull any bunches, uh, which is another reason that I love him so much. So how does Camus as an anarchist fit into the sort of the geopolitics of his time where with sort of the rise of communism and socialism and um and then you know this kind of war period the interwar period um help us kind of locate him in in that sort of milieu so Camus was certainly an advocate for socialism but he was I guess could be most charitably described as hostile to the Communist Party because he objected to the way it bought into what he called this historical determinacy, or I guess not what he called historical determinacy, the sort of historical um, deterministic prophecy of Marxism, right? That eventually capitalism would sow the seeds of its own destruction and, you know, fingers crossed, um, and there would be this um, future time where the workers would seize the means of production and live in a world um, that was good for them. What he worried about as he was writing um, specifically was, you know, the labor camps and the gulags of the Soviet Union and the horrors that we were being committed in the name of this future utopia. And he worried that the communists in pursuit of this idealized state were making a similar sort of mistake as had been made during the religious wars in the same way that people were able to say, well, it's okay that we're murdering people in this life because we're bringing about the kingdom of God. Mm. Camus worried that this commitment to the, the, the Marxist prophecy rendered people who otherwise would be political allies sort of indifferent to the human suffering that was being done in the name of this future utopian Liberation, state. yeah. Yeah. That would make one an anarchist, I guess, you know? I mean, I think that would be where my anarchist sensibilities would come from, where if I'm committed to socialism in the sense of a kind of utopian, if to use that expression, um, vision of people being provided having what they need provided for and and us all being sort of in this cooperative um social space and then when people start using guns and swords and tanks to impose that then i would be like whoa wait a second you know yeah that state authoritarianism is something that would i definitely i can see that pushing him more towards an anarchist kind of position 
Yeah. So interestingly, this is ultimately um, what led to the fissure between Camus and Satra was over this question and, and where wow. one um, should pledge their allegiance. And ultimately for Camus, this was fundamentally a question about the legitimacy of state violence and in particular the death penalty. Hmm. And one of his more famous lines is that is the job of thinking people not to be on the side of the executioners. And so the, the work of the rebel is to try and figure out how to identify that limit in which rebellion doesn't give away its own justification. Because if you're, you're you know, joining arms to fight against an, an, an impression, an invasion of your freedom, it ceases to be legitimate when you don't recognize that freedom in others. And he mm. worried that if rebellion was to use the tools that it had set out to fought against, it, it, it undermined its own legitimacy. And so that was the question that he wrestled with in mm. The Rebel. Wow. Yeah, I have to read The Rebel. I still haven't read The Rebel. It's, I guess, one of the more popular books that he's written. Is it the popular so I'm one? Not, I'm not sure. In fact, I had listed it when I had done an, an interview with Nigel Warburton as one of the five books of Camus that people should read. And that was the book that I got the most pushback for including. Hmm. People were upset about two things. I had left The Myth of Sisyphus and The Stranger off my list, <laughs> which I stand by for the record, <laughs> and that I had included The Rebel. But I really don't think you can understand what Camus is after, what his purpose is in writing The Fall or The Plague, if you don't have an understanding of what he's trying to accomplish in The Rebel. If, you, if your understanding of Camus is that he's this sort of like pessimistic nihilist and nothing matters, then like you've completely missed the point of Camus, I think. Um, that's that's not what he's after. The absurd is just a starting point. There's mm. nothing particularly clever or insightful about realizing that like God is dead and the world has no meaning to give us. <laughs> what really matters yeah. is what you do after that, how you respond to that, how you pick up the pieces and construct a meaning for yourself. I think that right there is why I love him so much because I've, you know, it was only five or six years ago that I sort of worked my way out of my sort of religious background and into a atheist and humanist framework. And I was surprised, I surprised myself how quickly the question of the existence of God and all that really became boring to me. Um, it, I mean, I'm still occasionally amped up by some, you know, absurd thing I read on the internet and like, hey, that's not right. Or, you know, I get into a little debate with someone, but I really am not that interested in whether or not a person believes in God. It's, it's, I'm, I'm more interested in how they go about believing in what they believe and what they do, like you say, with that, that belief system. And, and I'm also always a little surprised by how interested folks are in the question of whether you can be good without God and how that just continues to be like an obsessive um, concern for people um, or that somehow that nihilism would be the natural result of a kind of absurdist world. I actually, you know, wrote an article back when I was going through my year without God, sort of delineating between absurdism and nihilism and arguing that absurdism is just like you say, an observation about the world. <laughs> nihilism is more of a, you know, kind of a, either a choice or a consequence of, of some other misunderstandings, I guess. But, but I think you can, you can take that absurdism as a starting point and do what Camus did, and, which is to create a really beautiful vision of the world where, you know, toward the end of the plague, you have, you know, two men alone at night having this intense conversation about, you know, 
how it's worth it to die in the service of saving other people's lives and that this is a meaningful life. Like that's gorgeous to me. Yeah. So as, as someone who named myself after you, the fro on Twitter, I am with you at the, the bewildering experience it is <laughs> that people are still struggling with this idea that morality and God can, can come apart and that they need to be evaluated separately. Mm. Camus has this great line in The Rebel about nihilism. And he says that if nihilism is the inability to believe, then its most serious symptom is not found in atheism, but in the inability to believe in what is, to see what is happening and to live life as it is offered. Wow. And it, yeah, it just gets to what you're talking about, wow. that the real sin is to not live, to not act, to not make use of the opportunities that are in front of you. And that's really what he's after. That mm. We're supposed to be transcending nihilism. We're not supposed to just sort of say, oh, well, God is dead and there is no meaning. And maybe there is a God, but we can't know. And so that's it. And murder is fine. Right. The idea is how... How do we restore justice to a world that is so clearly without it? Yeah, and I think this really gets to the heart for me of why I've always said I would rather have an uncomfortable truth than a comforting lie, because you can't live, to my friend Martin Hagelin's um, sort of overarching point, you can't really live life as a life unless you're dealing with it on its face, like dealing with it as it presents itself to you. Otherwise, you're just living in a fiction, which isn't really living, right? That's a sort of... Uh, pretending, you know? And so if I think, you know, that I'm going to live forever and that what I do here doesn't really matter uh, and that makes me feel better, well then screw you, man. Like that's, that's like you're, you're prioritizing your own sense of comfort over uh, the suffering of others where I think what Camus does and what, what I would love to see more people embrace is, okay, this story starts with a very, you know, sort of um, hard to accept reality, which is you know, there are no promises. Life could go much worse than it's going right now, even though it's going pretty badly. Or it could get a lot better, uh, depending on what we decide to do with the moments that we're given. And that's where life is lived in that moment of that decision of like, how am I going to do? What am I going to do with the moments that are given to me? Yeah, that's exactly it. And this is what Camus was talking about when he's talking about the importance of lucidity and how nothing is worth anything except through consciousness, because it's through our, our willingness to face the world as it actually is mm. that we're able to identify what we're able to do. There's this one line in, in his, one of his journals that um, always just really struck me. And, and he says, the absurdity of the catastrophe does not alter the fact that it exists. Right. So there's nothing to be gained from turning away from the horror of existence. There's only dealing with it. Mm. And nothing is going to get better through our refusal to do so. And so we have to look at squarely in the face and we have to be honest with what it is and, and who we are. Mm. And I think that who we are, I've been wanting to get around to this question of innocence and guilt. And I think that's the maybe the jumping off point right there. Um that part of what maybe makes us reluctant to, to look at the world and see it for what it is, is that it implicates us as well. Like, it's not just that the world is screwed up, it's that I'm screwed up and that I do shitty things and I contribute to the suffering. I don't get off scot-free. And, and one of the biggest, the thing that hit me the most in my second reading of The Fall was this 
notion that this character who's sort of narrating his life story for this stranger is uh, talking about his fall from innocence, right? I mean, that's kind of how he woke up to the fact that he's guilty. Well, so I would push back. I'm not sure that the narrator of The Fall wakes up to the idea he doesn't. Okay. that he's guilty. Um, I find him to be very chilling, actually. Um, he doesn't strike me as someone with a conscience. <laughs> he seems less interested in actually being good than he is with perpetuating his idea of himself Appear- as good. Appearing good, yeah, to others and yeah, to himself. I mean, He's, yeah, he's much more invested in in maintaining the systems that allow him to look down on other people hmm. than he is in, in actually engaging in the work to lift other people up. I think this ties into Camus' whole project because Camus was very much of the opinion that it wasn't the, – the aim of morality was not to judge other people as good or bad, but to understand the systems. And so mm. rather than identify any individual actor as good or bad, he was looking at how the system itself functioned to inform us as to what our ideas of good or bad were. Mm. And so for Camus, it, it, it makes more sense to, to understand things that are bad as the result of mistakes more so than crimes. But as it relates to the fall, he's trying to get at this idea of what keeps in place these notions of good and evil that keep us locked in, you know, fighting these sort of superficial battles rather than engaging with like the material conditions of our world that are responsible for human suffering. Hmm. I wonder, you know, just to bring it to our, you know, I guess culture wars type of um, moment, which, and and I actually don't think that the culture wars and sort of the material debate, the, the debates around the material conditions of of workers and just ordinary people are that separate. Um, I, I get how culture war discussions can be distracting from talking about the the real you know matters of people's lives, but um, I think what drives so much, and I'm curious your take on this, what drives so much of the animosity towards social justice on the right is this sense that people are implicated and, you know, they don't want to be called racist, you know, and they don't, when we can just, you know, we could debate about whether that's the right term to use or whatever, but people don't want to be thought of, they don't, first of all, don't want to think of themselves as biased or bigoted or racist or sexist or transphobic or anything else. They want to be seen as good and, and they don't want others to see them in that way. And I I just wanted to share this one, um, quote or this statement that struck struck me from the fall um in in the the narrator says um people hasten to judge in order not to be judged themselves what do you expect the idea that comes most naturally to man as if from his very nature is the idea of his innocence and then skipping ahead just a little bit he says we are all exceptional cases we all want to appeal to something each of us insists on being innocent at all costs, even if he has to accuse the whole human race and heaven itself. So, yeah. And so this is why I find the narrator of the fall <laughs> so chilling, because he's basically saying here that, yeah, I'm just engaged in this profound cognitive dissonance because uh, it helps me sleep at night. And I'd rather believe myself to be good and, and in, in the rebel, Camus phrases it differently. He says, the triumph of man who kills or tortures 
is marred by one shadow. He is unable to feel that he is innocent. Thus, he must create guilt in his victim. Mm. And it's this idea that we don't want to feel bad about the things that we do or the way that we harm people. And so we create this elaborate system and in this country, an elaborate criminal justice system um, that, that sets up a moral universe in which it isn't bad to do these sorts of things to people or to not mitigate their suffering because they're the sorts of people who deserve it. And what we're actually doing is upholding you know, the, the very nature of a moral universe by doing these things that are actually very bad. Yeah, I mean, it's just like conversations I've had recently. We recently had an officer involved shooting, which is the euphemism that you, you use uh, when you're in government. Um, but a police officer shot and killed a black man in my neighborhood about three weeks ago. Maybe it's been four weeks ago now. And, um, and the arguments on our sort of local politics pages on Facebook and such were people saying, well, he had a felony record and he had a gun when there's really no visual evidence from any of the videos they've released that he had a gun. But even if he did have a gun, right, does this person deserve to die? Like, and so people have to imp- impute guilt, like he said, in, you know, that quote you just read, in the other, in order for us to not feel badly. And I, you know, w- what's amazing to me is that people give away the game, you know, they give away the fact that they're automatically on the police officer's side because they're identifying their innocence and guilt with the police officer's innocence, innocence and guilt. The people that are, you know, white or privileged in, in these debates, you know, they, they immediately jump to the, the defense of the police officer. Why? You didn't you didn't shoot the guy. You're not a cop. Like, why do you have to feel this need to defend this person who did this obviously, you know, horrible thing to, and killed this person? Because you are you are like giving away the fact that you are implicated in this whole system and you know it, but to justify it, you have to then say he, that man deserved to be to be shot. Yeah, that's exactly right. I think actually Kate Mann and her analysis of sexism gives us really helpful language mm. for making sense of this because she she moves the focus of sexism away from the mindset of the person who is engaging in misogynistic behavior and looks to its function on the people it impacts as a way of identifying it. Hmm. And one thing that she points out to, and, and the reason that she thinks this is advantage is because from the perspective of a person who is a misogynist, it is very likely to be the case, not that they're doing something morally bad, but that they're merely upholding the right moral order of the universe, which is that women are inferior. And so it's not that they're sexist. It's not that they're discriminating. They are rightfully putting women back in the place where they belong. And it's to, to maintain this idea of what is the dominant moral universe. And I think that is very much at the heart in these debates about police. It's, it's very weird to me, the commitment people have to upholding this notion of police officers as heroes. Because for the most part, I don't know about you, I'm a relatively privileged white woman. And the biggest fear I've ever had to worry about getting pulled over by a cop is whether I was going to get a ticket or hit on. I can't imagine having to worry about being gunned down. But even that being said, I've never experienced the lights of a police car going on behind me without anything other than a sinking pit in my stomach. It very much feels like being in open water with a shark, like you are in danger. Mm -hmm. And yet 
we still want to uphold this idea that they're they're heroes or they're 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 serving they're protecting and i understand that there are police officers who do good things i you know obligatory sure. disclosure um but it's it's not true that being a police officer is the most dangerous job it's simply not the case and it's simply not the case that the police response to most of the situations to which they're called is the right or even helpful one but we're so committed to this idea of of dominance and being able to have this sort of authority over and having a class of people who are rightly understood as criminals that these punitive and harmful structures are not just kept in place, but lionized as part of a good and proper moral order that I personally hmm. think is a mistake. Absolutely. And yeah, and, and I think, it, it again, it comes back to what would it say about me and my place in the world if we abolish the police in whatever form that takes and the world improved? Like, it would mean that I was wrong about a lot of things prior and and i just i just think that this is so difficult i mean i see it when i when i left the church um when i left my faith um you know that people couldn't even people that i had private conversations with about their doubts about religion and god's existence and all the rest really had a hard time admitting to themselves that they could be wrong about this or that the world what would it mean if this weren't true you know what would it mean to your your whole worldview, if it were, if, if something you've been told your entire life isn't true, like that's upsetting, no matter what the subject is, um, psychically upsetting, intellectually upsetting. And yet, in the case of whether it's systemic racism or systemic misogyny or violence perpetuated against trans people, you know, people's lives are on the line. People are dying. And we would rather be right than than actually address the that fact that people are dying. And to me, humanism and facing the absurdity of the world honestly and and asking oneself, what does it mean to live a good life in the face of this absurdity is really about that humility of being able to say, um, I might be wrong about a lot of things here and how do I remain open without... Also having some commitments, you know, like I have to sort of have enough things in mind that I can move forward in my life and actually make some choices, but remaining open enough that I can adjust my way of being in the world or my attitude about the world um, when the case is called for. Yeah, so I think the the desire to be right at the expense of being happy is one of the most destructive worldviews that a person can have, or at least self-destructive worldviews. Simone de Beauvoir said that, Self-knowledge was no guarantee of happiness, but it could provide the conditions and the courage to fight for it. Hmm. But what what makes this really hard is I, wow. I think you're you're right. Being told that you're wrong is is very scary, is very disorienting. And I think what makes it particularly difficult for Americans is that there isn't a clearly established alternative. As, as Gramsci mm. said, right, the old world is dying and the new is not yet born. Right. So this is the time of monsters. And so I think what's really in our way is that even for people who maybe have a feeling that something is not right, even if they quite can't quite articulate it like that, there isn't an alternative for them to turn to. There's no other foundation to stand on. 
Mm. And this is this is that standing on the dizzying crest that that Camus talks about and that Kierkegaard talks about. And it's it's very terrifying to stand out on the edge of the cliff and look down and not know what to do next. But if we're going to actually live a life of meaning, if we're actually going to experience something in life other than the sheer terror of the horror show we're exposed to, mm. we have to face reality as it is. Wow. And I'm admitting we're wrong. Yep. This is bad. This is a bad world. This is a bad system. This is incompatible with human well-being and human flourishing. And we've reached a point where we actually have the human capacity to do it differently. We just have to choose to do that. Yeah, I mean, it seems like the other one, what's jumping to mind as you say that is that the sort of the other side of the coin of being wrong is not knowing what to do, like not knowing, like having this uncertainty. So there's like ignorance and then there's uncertainty. So yeah, like I, I get, I get into this all the time talking about police violence with folks, even in my local community. Well, if we abolish the police, what would we do? You know, and they don't know what, what we would, I don't frankly know quite what we would do. I don't know that anybody exactly knows what we would do, but we would create something better is what we would do. You know, we would work together to create something better and there are models. It's not as though there are no models or there are no ideas out there. People have been thinking about this for decades. And there was a time when we didn't have police and the world didn't fall apart. So we have that to look to. But, it, but this kind of sense of uncertainty is very unsettling for people. And I think this, is, this, again, goes to why people have such a hard time leaving their faith and also why they have such a hard time reevaluating their political views. Because when they step away from that known entity there is kind of that abyss waiting for them of unknown. Um, you know, if I've been told all my life that socialists are communists and they're going to destroy like that millions of lives. Um, so I can't do that. And maybe it takes a little too much energy to figure out the real truth about that. Um, but yeah, it's very disorienting for folks. And I just, I wish I found a way, could find a way to make it easier for, for people like to help them, step away from some of those commitments and just maybe loosen their grip on them just a little bit. Yeah. So I'm, I'm with you. I think it's, it's hard to do in this environment because the very way that the United States is set up and structured makes it even scarier than it would otherwise be in ordinary yeah. circumstances. And we're supposed to be an exceptional country to begin with. So we're supposed to be the example to the whole world. Well, we do lead um, in incarcerated people as a percentage of a population. <laughs> yep. I believe we also lead in um, instances of mental health. Oh. We lead, I believe, in maternal mortality. Mm. So, yeah, we, we definitely are exceptional in some regards. We are kicking butt in number of COVID deaths. I can tell you that. Right. We, we clearly have the gold medal in number of citizens who have died yeah. from a disease. Much we, awesome. We are the the global leader in bankruptcies due to medical diagnoses. So yeah, the country's definitely exceptional. That's true. Kicking ass out there, kicking ass. But again, because of the way that all of those things coincide, Americans, average Americans, obviously not the very wealthy Americans whose stock portfolios are, you know, kicking butt in the time of Corona, but everyday average Americans who have to work for a living and are mostly paycheck to paycheck are 
cognitively taxed. All of their brain resources are going to just not drowning. Right. And I think it was it was John Lennon who said, you know, when you're drowning in the ocean, you don't politely say, excuse me, sir, could you please extend the, the raft and save my life? You just scream. Right. And I think one of the things that we can do that I think is really important to do is keep that in mind and be compassionate when we're knocking heads with people that we don't agree with. Because for the most part, people aren't being difficult because they've identified being difficult as some sort of moral virtue. Right. They're tapped. And, you know, this is something that I think it would be very important, particularly for, for Democrats or people who identify as Democrats or who lean Democrats to keep in mind as we get closer to this terrifying election in November. It's, it's very tempting. And I, I understand the impulse to dismiss Trump supporters or, or libertarians as bad people or racists or not very smart. And I'm not saying that that isn't true. Um, in some cases, in many cases, maybe it is. Um, but it's not a particularly helpful insight. And it right. certainly doesn't enable us to change anybody's minds. And it's almost like the low hanging fruit. And it's it's almost done some I've, I've seen it done some ways as a way of people sort of patting themselves on the back, trying to feel superior as some sort of comfort in terrible times that at least they're better than those bad people over there. And what good is it if you're great, you've identified that someone's a racist, you're so smart, but you're not smart enough to get them to realize this isn't actually a way of living their life that makes things go better for them. And you're perpetuating this idea that we are in opposing tribal camps Mm -hmm. and no possibility of working together as we continue into our rapid descent into the pits of hell. (laughs) Yes. I mean, I think it's, again, the appeal to innocence. You know, I'm better than them. I'm innocent of all of this. It's not my fault. You know, the identification of Trump as this unique horror in American history is a a way for liberals, I think, to express their innocence that this is not our fault that we have all of this. Um, When there is a relatively straight line from history to Donald Trump that we've more different ones of us to differing degrees have participated in. So, yeah, I also find that demonizing of of Trump voters, in spite, of, in spite of how tempting it is at times, um, really, really not helpful. Well, this has been fun. And I actually think that one of the perhaps, um, and maybe it's too easy to say, but one of the maybe antidotes to this despair of um, being able to identify our own wrongness and our own guilt and our own reluctance to question our viewpoints is to read more Camus. Um, I think everybody should read more Camus. I think it can help us solve a lot of these problems, even with the issue of, you know, police brutality. I think one of the places where Camus might be in trouble for being canceled is I think Camus would be out in front um, as, and as hard as this is not demonizing the police, um, not making enemies out of them. Hmm. Um, not, you know, I'd like Camus would not be someone to say all cops are bastards, um, not even because he didn't believe that all cops are bastards. I'm convinced he believed that in, you know, the inner <laughs> sanctum of right. his heart. But that in order to really transcend and overcome the institution of, of prison and criminal punishment itself, that if we were really going to be successful and we really wanted to minimize suffering, we would have to find a way to work with people who would otherwise be our allies. And you can't work with people if your starting point is you are a bad person 
even if they are, in fact, bad people. Right. Because it's just going to shut them down. Hmm. So this whole notion of making these sort of moral judgments and dividing ourselves into camps of good or bad, innocent, guilty, is just the first thing that's in the way and that needs to be gotten rid of. So a very Camus response to like police brutality, Hmm. uh, you know, his defunding of the police. And like, he didn't say this. So this is sort of me putting words in his mouth. Um, But I would argue is at least consistent with his worldview would be like, you know, retire all of them and give them their pensions. Let them go home. Right. You know, don't we don't need to to make them into bad guys. We don't need to recast people who are invested in being heroes as villains. Let them go home. Thank you for your your contribution to society. You know, you were raised in a society that told you this was good and you you followed this path because you were led to believe it was a noble and upright way to feed and provide for your family. But we know better now. And it turns out this <laughs> we don't is not need a you. Yeah. And, and so maybe retrain them. Anymore. Yeah. And we're not going to punish you for your participation because you're you grew up in the society that told you that this was good. So here's your pension. I like um, it. Here's your health insurance. Go enjoy your family. Sorry for the, the inconvenience. Right. So this has been a, a fun, rambling sort of uh, sort of asynchronous conversation at times about contemporary life and politics and Camus, but perhaps there's folks that are listening that haven't really gotten into Camus or it's been since high school that they read some obligatory Camus. Um, I've, I myself have only read The Plague and The Fall and I'm, I'm catching up. Actually, I think I read The Myth of Sisyphus years ago, um, but I definitely want to get into The Rebel and I, I oddly haven't read The Stranger, which I do think is one that people often, often do read. Where would you... Uh, suggest people dive in if they want if they're new to Camus. So um, this is the interview that I did with Nigel Warburton, where I listed five books that I thought were mandatory Camus reading and where people should start. I listed The Fall as number one, just because of my own personal bias. I really think it's it's my favorite. And I really think it's accessible and getting to what Camus is really after this, these notions of good and evil, how it's baked into our society, how that influences our understanding of, of ourselves and in what ways we're deluding ourselves about our own moral goodness and how that's in the way of, of meaningful happiness and connection to other people. So that is my go-to recommendation. I tell everybody to start there. And it's only about 120 pages or 140 pages. And these pages are with wide margins. So it it, it, I think one of the things you said in that interview was to, if, if you could, read it in one sitting um, or as few sittings as possible. Yeah, if you can read it in one sitting, it's it's great. Uh, the Stranger is similarly lengthy at, I think, about 140 pages in the U.S. in the English translation. And I had read that again in one sitting just a couple of weeks ago because Emily Herring had started a Camus book club that I was participating in. And so we went through a number of Camus works, and that was one of them. You know, I left The Stranger off my list because I think too much attention has been given to Camus on the absurd. And Camus himself was frustrated that people were concentrating on the absurd and and not paying attention to his later work. But that is also a great book. And I think that's a way of understanding Camus' fears of of who Camus could have been Mm. or what happens to people when they aren't given the opportunity for education and they are constrained by the material conditions of poverty, just exactly how that forecloses a life. But I think 
given the, the circumstances that we're in, if, if people are really only going to read one work of Camus, right now they should read The Plague. Yeah. That's what I would say to them. Read, read The Plague. Because everything that Camus is writing about everywhere else is, is articulated in The Plague. And you could, I think the best way to understand it is he's sort of staging a play. And what he's really trying to do is to get the reader to, to understand the philosophy behind it, the lessons that are there for themselves through the, the way that different people interact with one another and, and the impacts that have. And I think it's a much more enjoyable way of internalizing and integrating his philosophy than sitting down with something like The Rebel, which I think is a great book but can be off-putting if you're not already familiar with Camus and what his project is and, and ultimately what he's after. No, that's really helpful. Um, yeah, and I think especially we're, we're still in a plague of our own so, and, and likely to face more in the future. So I, I think that the sort of the backdrop for his sort of play, as you describe, is, is relevant in a fresh way, as we've uh, said many times before. Well, thank you so much for for doing this. This is so much fun, and I, it's so natural just to sort of uh, sort of rant with you about some of the things that we're experiencing in the world and how to make sense of it. And um, I hope we can maybe talk about more things in the, in the near future. I would love that. Thank you so much, Ryan. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm sure many of you are Camus fans like Jamie and me. I'd love to hear what your favorite Camus novel is or what your favorite theme or quote is. Please write to me at ryan at lifeaftergod.org. To learn more about Life After God, to link up with our social media accounts and stay in touch, please visit our website at lifeaftergod.org. There you can join our email newsletter and browse the back catalog of episodes. If this podcast is meaningful to you and it's been a source of inspiration, please join the group of members and patrons who make it possible by visiting our Patreon page at patreon.com slash lifeaftergod. I'll also put the link in the show notes. Thank you again for tuning in. And seriously, drop me a line anytime. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, my name is Ryan Bell, and this has been the Life After God podcast. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.